Welcome to the Salt Company Cedar Falls podcast. We're a ministry of Candeo Church, and we are glad you're listening. All right, you guys can take a seat. Thank you so much for joining us at Salt Company tonight. My name is Stephen Jones, and I've got a question for you. So here's the question. Who are you? Now, I'm not saying like, what's your name or what do you like? Like, oh, I'm Jim. It's like, no, like really, like think about it. It's a big question. Who are you? Why do you exist? What is your purpose? So while you think about that, we'll circle back in a second to that. I want to introduce myself a little bit more. So like I said, I'm Stephen. Nice to meet you. This is my family. I am married. My beautiful wife, Natalie, there. We've been married for five years now. Uh, Down in the bottom right is our daughter, Isla. She is three, almost four. She is awesome. All things princess, all things pink. We got Jack. He is Jack Attack right now. Just all gears running. It's awesome. He is a blast. And then we've got Crew. So he's seven weeks old. Jack is two years old. They're an awesome family. And I hope you each get to meet them. I hope you get to meet Natalie. She is an incredible woman of God. She is marked by humility, by sacrifice. Every single day, she sacrifices her interest for others to help them. And I love her so much. So that's my family. They're great. Uh, Natalie and I, as you can imagine, love our kids. Like, they're hilarious. One of the things that I say is that Isla is accidentally funny, whereas Jack is purposely funny. And they just make us laugh all the time. So one of the things that I most delight in is they do this thing where they will take objects and use them in a completely wrong way. So last night, no, Tuesday night, I come walking into the house after work. We're making supper. I come into the kitchen. I come around the corner, and I see Jack. And he is standing there in the kitchen on a fishing pole. Like standing on a fishing pole, it was a little toy fishing pole with like a magnet on the end to catch fake fish, not real fish. But he's standing on this and I'm like looking at him, like trying to figure out what's going on. And he just looks up at this big grin. He's like, daddy, this is my skateboard. All right, good skateboard. Not going to get you anywhere, anywhere fast. But they do this all the time. Like we'll take these objects and just do crazy things. Jack, a couple weeks ago, was walking around our house hunched over with this ukulele, just walking around. And he like looks up and goes, Daddy, it's my walking stick. <laughs> walking stick. Okay, that's a new one. That's great. Haven't hiked with him for a while, so I don't know where he heard walking stick, but that's what he was thinking about, walking sticks. He uses, a lot of things are walking sticks in our house. There's a pink baseball bat, walking stick. So that is Jack. That is our kids. They're constantly using objects in kind of like an imagination kind of way for in a way that they weren't actually intended to be used. Now, in one sense, that's just like funny toddler thing to do, right? Like use a fork as a comb. Isla loves Ariel. So she does that kind of stuff. So in one sense, that's funny. But there's also, if you like kind of stop and think about it, it's like, man, if Jack really wanted to use that fishing pole as a skateboard, he would get pretty frustrated, right? It's like, that's not going to get you anywhere. You're going to like, you can't even stand on a fishing pole. The surface isn't big enough. Why? Because little tykes didn't design that fishing pole as a skateboard. The company that created that fishing pole had an intent. They had a design. And for Jack to use that in a way that wasn't according to that design would lead to frustration. Okay, back to our question that we started with. Who are you? Is it possible that the center of the pain that you feel, of the discouragement that you face in life, the disappointment, the lack of fulfillment, your arrogance, all of that, is actually at its root caused by your thinking you're a skateboard. You thinking you are something other than what your creator designed you to be. 
so many of us, the frustration that we feel, feel in life is because we're told, you just got to go and look deep within yourself to discover your true identity, discover your true design. And, but what we fail to realize is just like that little tyke's fishing pole, there is a creator who defined who you are. And the longer you push against that definition of who you are, the more frustrated and discouraged and disappointed you will become. And what I want to show you tonight is that actually the path to joy and fulfillment is by not looking deep within to try to discover who you are, but to actually embrace the design your creator had for your life. To embrace his definition of who you are. So to do that, God wastes no time in our Bibles on answering that question. He actually answers it in the first few pages. So we're going to open to the book of Genesis. And we are going to see the creation account. Uh, little tip, I said this last week, but every single week we're going to use our Bibles a lot. I think it's just best to have a Bible with you. We will have it on the screen in case you forget it at home. That's okay. But even if you're not sure about Christianity, it is awesome to have a Bible because then you can see it straight from the source. You don't have to take our word for it. You can actually see what we're teaching from. So Genesis, we're going to start with the very first words of the Bible. It's kind of one of those like few weeks in a church service where you don't have to use the table of contents. Praise the Lord. PTL. Who are you? Okay, so if we're going to see God's answer for that, we first have to start with who is God? Because understanding who your creator is will set us up to then understand who he created us to be. So God, like I said, wastes no time in introducing himself to us. So we're going to see a few things about God's nature in these first eight verses. So look there with me, Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. We're going to read to verse 8. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Now that same pattern is going to continue for six days. On the seventh day, God completes his creation. He rests. But that kind of sets you up to understand where the rest of Genesis 1 is going. But actually in these first eight verses, we learn a ton about who God is. Okay, look at the very first verse. In the beginning, God created. Okay. Here's what I absolutely believe to be true. You could spend your entire life contemplating the very first sentence of the Bible and you would never fully grasp it. In one sense, it sounds so simple, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But in another sense, there is so much depth and complexity to this sentence that you could spend your whole life and you never grasp it. Here's what I mean. So look at those first four words. In the beginning, God. 
Here's what he's saying. In the beginning, the universe had a definite start. The universe has not just always been around. There was a beginning when the universe started, when this whole thing began. But who was there in the beginning? God created. You catch what's happening? He's saying, in the beginning, the universe started and God created. God was the one who began time, space, matter. God is outside of time. He was there to initiate the universe's beginning. God wasn't uh, started like the universe. God instead was eternal. Think about that. God has always existed. There was never a time where God did not exist. In fact, God created time, the linear sequential unfolding of events. God was there in the beginning. Now, eternity is essential to God's being. In order to be God, it is essential that he has always existed. Eternity is not actually essential to you and I's being because you have a birthday and before that birthday, you didn't exist. And so, but now you do exist. So existence is essential to, your, to your, your being. But God, on the other hand, it is absolutely essential that he has always existed for eternity because if something else began him, that thing that began him would be greater than God which would mean we should worship that supreme being. So it is absolutely essential that God has eternally existed. This is a concept that just blows our mind. We as finite beings don't have the capacity to fully grasp what it means that God is infinite, that God is eternal. As the psalmist says in 90 verse two, he says that before the mountains were born, before creation was birthed, from eternity to eternity, you are God. Is that crazy? You have a birthday. God doesn't. He has always been. Okay, not only that, we also see what he did, what he created. So he started time. He started space and matter, but he created the heavens and the earth. In this, we see his power. We see his power in what he created and how he created it. So what did he create? He created the heavens and the earth. Guys, think about creation. Think about how incredibly complex creation is. From the smallest molecule to the galaxies that God created, our creation is vast and beautiful and abundant and incredible. Guys, think about this. What does it mean to be a PhD? It means that you devote your entire life to studying one subject. And yet you do not even master that one subject. Do you realize that we have only scratched the surface in a knowledge of God's finite creation? If we've only scratched the surface in understanding God's finite creation, how much more limited are we in understanding an infinite God? Think about breathing. Think about all the cellular processes that happen when you take a breath. Let's all do that together. It's kind of like, I don't know, what, what do you do when you breathe together? Is, that, is there a name for that? Breathing together? Pretty simple, straightforward. All right, let's do this incredible thing, breathing together. Guys, one of my love languages, I'm sorry if you weren't quite done with the Excel, okay. One of my love languages is getting large groups of people to do the same thing at the same time. Don't know what it is, it's just this weird thing. Last week was the go cats, this week is the breathing all together. There's gonna be more of that, stick around. Okay, think about everything that just happened. 
you sucked in oxygen, like your lungs inflated, it went down. There is little cells that their cellular lining is so thin that there is an ability for your hemoglobin to have a transfer of CO2 and oxygen. And then that, CO, that oxygen with the hemoglobin is gonna be pumped by your heart to every part of your body. And then it's gonna come right back and get reoxygenated. Is that wild? That happens 22,000 times a day for 8 billion people. Like, just think about that. Like 22,000 times a day, 8 billion people do the whole breathing thing we just did. Maybe not together at the same time because that would start to get a little awkward, but it's mind-blowing. But not just on the small molecular level. Think about the galaxies. There are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way. <laughs> what? Yeah, and that's one galaxy. You know how many galaxies there are? Two trillion. Don't even know. I think you need that like 10 with the little number up there to even get close to that number. Like what on earth? Like that is incredible. Two trillion galaxies, a hundred billion stars in R1. And you know how many planets we've gotten to out of the eight in our solar system? One, we're on it right now. Congratulations. You made it, you got to the one. Guys, it's like, we're not even close to getting to Mars. And there's billions, what? That's wild. How did God make all that? Look what it says. Verse three. Then God said, let there be light. Did you hear how easy it was for me to just say that sentence? Let there be light. Like talking is one of literally, at least for me, one of the easiest things I do. My son Jack can say hello. Like it's not that hard. Something so easy for us, God with that created billions of galaxies. I mean, trillions, two trillion. I mean, at least a billion, but two trillion, what? Billions of stars, let there be light. With his voice, because there was nothing, absolutely nothing except God existing for eternity. And he began time. And then he created the heavens and the earth with his voice. Oh, how incredible is that? What a powerful God we have. There wasn't some crazy like roll up your sleeves. It was just let there be light. Billions of stars. Let the waters teem with fish. All of the processes to get oxygen and gills. Let vegetation be on earth. Oak trees that like have that crazy ability to take water all the way up to the top. I forgot to say the let there. I just went with the boo. (laughs) Guys, it is wild. Okay, let there be living creatures. Oh my goodness. The millions of species on our earth. And how many words is that? Let there be living creatures. Five, five words. Let me just ask you, how big is your God? How big is your vision of God? I know it's funny to go, but really like to describe what he did, it it kind of is that noise. Like let there be light. Trillions of galaxies spread across just like that. Oh my goodness. Have you ever thought about God this way? Or is he just a small God at some home church of yours that a few old people believe in? 
Have you ever contemplated the reality that he has eternally existed? Never began. That God is outside of time. Like how does that even work? Our minds begin to hurt. Guys, God is eternal. God is powerful. And in this, we even see God is incomprehensible. Look at that again. Verse 1, in the beginning, God. Now, I'm going to get super theological here on you. So if you have an ESV study Bible, which is an incredible resource, all of you should go buy it, an ESV study Bible. If you buy that, you're going to be set for life on knowing the Bible, basically. Eh, A couple asterisks there. (laughs) There there are probably like two asterisks next to that sentence. But get an ESV study Bible. This is so accessible to all of you. If you open up to Genesis 1, verse 1, and you look at the study Bible, what you're going to see is when it says, in the beginning, God, the fourth word in our Bible, that word God is Elohim. That is the name referred to as God. Now, Elohim, here's the interesting thing. If you keep reading in that study note, what it's going to say is that is a plural word. It's not singular, it's plural. Okay, so keep that in your mind. That's kind of crazy. Okay, not only that, look at verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And what was hovering? The Spirit of God was hovering. Okay, Spirit of God. What is that? Okay, you got a plural name of God. You got the Spirit of God. We're going to come to this verse in a little bit, verse 26, but I'll at least show you for a second. Verse 26 of chapter 1, it says, Then God said, Let us make man. What is the us? Why is he saying that plural? Now here's what we're getting. We're getting traces of the doctrine of the Trinity. From just this one, we're not getting the full revelation of the Trinity, but we're at least getting traces of what Christians refer to as the Trinity. And the Trinity is this, that we have one God who is comprised of three distinct persons. Letting, letting some pain happen in your mind because that's what happens when I think about that. It's like one God, three distinct persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And what we're getting here in the very first verse of the Bible is at least traces of that. Now, God doesn't fully reveal this truth about himself until the New Testament when the word of God becomes flesh in Jesus Christ and we begin to see the full manifestation of this doctrine of the Trinity. But even in Genesis 1, we are getting to see this complex, incomprehensible nature of our God. He's eternal, he is powerful, and he is Trinity. One God made up of three distinct persons. What an incredible God we have. At the, by the words of his mouth, he can create galaxies. He has always existed, and he's always existed as three distinct persons made up in one unified God. Wow, that is crazy. That is the God that we serve and worship. So in Genesis 1, we get this transcendent vision of God. We begin to see that he is majestic and glorious and holy and powerful and eternal. That he is this incomprehensible being. That is who God is. Now, what does that mean for us? What does it mean for us? Who are we then? Well, really, as Genesis 1 and 2 unfold, we're going to see several things that God begins to reveal to us about ourselves that begins to answer who we are. So we're going to see first the nature of humans. Then we're going to see how, how God created us and its significance to answering that question. And then lastly, we're going to see the design that God intends for your life. So what is our nature? Verse 26, we just read it briefly, but we're going to see the nature of humanity. So verse 26, it's now the sixth day of creation. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. 
They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. The nature of humanity, you are created in the image of God. In you, you were created in the likeness of this great and glorious God. Okay, what does that mean? Well, I showed you a picture of my family and of our three kids. And when you see our three kids, you should be able to see a reflection of Natalie and I in them. They are from us. They should give the world a reflection of their parents. So all of our kids have blue eyes. Thank goodness. I hope that means the rest of their attributes look like Natalie because for their sake, they don't want this, right? Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go. They have blue eyes that you can see a reflection of their parents. When you look at our children, you can see a glimpse of Natalie and I. That is what God did. When he made you in his image, in his likeness, he wanted the world to get a glimpse of his glory when they look at you. Every single human ever created gives the world a glimpse of his perfection, a glimpse of his glory, a glimpse of his beauty, a glimpse of his majesty. That means that there's certain attributes of God that we share with him. Our ability to know things, our unique position in creation, having not just a physical makeup, but a spiritual makeup. It also means that every single human carries value, dignity, and worth. Why? Because they're created in the image of God. This great God, you show the world a glimpse of that. So your nature, who are you? You are someone made in God's image. Not only that, but also in how God made you, do we start to see a significant part of the answer of who you are. So flip over to Genesis 2. So Genesis 1 kind of tails into Genesis 2. It ends on the seventh day. God rests from his work. Now Genesis 2 kind of shifts gears and gives a retelling of the creation narrative. So start in verse 4. We're going to see, when we ask who are you, we're going to see some significant answers to that and how God made you. So first you're made in his image. Now how did God make you? Genesis 2, 4. These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown in the land and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the, all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. Okay, so in Genesis 1, what do we see about God? We see that he is this great transcendent being. And I think one of the thoughts that we can have as we contemplate the greatness of God, and it could be like, man, how could this great God ever care about me? But here's what we begin to see in Genesis 2 is that this great transcendent God becomes imminent and near. Now we see this in two distinct ways from Genesis 1. So Genesis 2 has two distinct differences from Genesis 1 that is going to prove that this transcendent God is imminent, meaning he is near and accessible to you. First is the name by which God is referred to. Okay, we're going to get ESV study Bible smart again. Notice the ref how they refer to God in Genesis 2, 4. So it says, every time it mentions God, it says, the Lord God. In Genesis 1, it just said God. 
Now, if you got your ESV study Bible, you go down to the notes and say, what's going on here? What you'll find is that in Genesis 1, we said God is being referred to as Elohim. That is like the generic name of God. And it's using it to uh, promote his transcendence and his power in creation. But then we get to Genesis 2, 4, and the name switches. The Lord God. And the Lord right there is actually the word Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God. So the difference between Elohim and Yahweh would be like if you're walking on campus. One time I was walking on campus and I actually came past the presidential house. And as I'm walking past the presidential house, there is Mark Nook. And you know what I said to him? I said, what's up, Mark? No, of course not. Are you kidding me? I said, President Nook, it's so great to meet you. I am like just so grateful for your leadership on our campus. Why? Because it'd be super disrespectful to say, what's up, Mark? The difference between Elohim and Yahweh is the difference between President Nook and Mark. Who gets to call him Mark? Thank you. Thank you. Finally, somebody answers a rhetorical question that I've been asking this whole time. <laughs> okay, who gets to call him Mark? People who have a personal relationship with him. That's the only people that get to call him Mark. If you have a personal relationship with him, otherwise it's President Nook. Here's what God is doing. He's telling all of the created world, all of us humans, you get to call me Mark. <laughs> dear Mark, good. No, don't start praying, dear Mark. God is telling you that you get to use the personal name that presupposes a relationship. That presupposes a personal relationship. It's awesome. So you see the difference in the name that God uses, but not only that, in how, the method by which God makes humans. Did you catch it in verse seven? Then the Lord formed. He formed the man. How did God create everything else in Genesis 1? his voice. He spoke. What's up with this difference? He formed. Not only that, for the woman, after he creates Adam, he creates Eve. Verse 21, the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs, closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made, he made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman. What's up with this forming and making? We know that if God can speak two trillion galaxies into existence, he for sure can speak humanity into existence. So why does he choose to form and make? It's because he wants you to know that he came down to be near. He came to be eminent. He came to be personal. We don't just have this transcendent, great God who is distant. In the God of the Bible, we have a God who is personal a God who is near. Yes, he's transcendent. Yes, he created galaxies by, the, the by his voice, but he also got down into the dust and formed. And not only that, look what he does. He breathed the breath of life into his nostrils and the man became a living being. He breathed into his nostrils. How awkward would it be if the person next to you breathed into your nostrils right now? Like incredibly awkward. <laughs> like if you just did that, it's like, dude, you are a freak. I am never coming back here. I don't care if I've been a leader at this ministry for two years, I'm never coming back. You just breathe in my nostrils. <laughs> Why is that so awkward? It's because it's intimate. 
there's like four people on earth that I'll let breathe into my nostrils. Like literally, I'd let my wife and my three kids breathe into my nostrils. If you aren't in that category, there's no, none of your breath coming in here. I have a distinct advantage. I have nasal polyps, so it blocks. It's like, ah, like, get out, breath. <laughs> Breathing into nostrils is incredibly intimate. And what God is trying to communicate to his world in the second page of the Bible is that you should be picturing a father holding an infant when you think of God. Uh, last night, the older kids went to bed crew was laying on the floor and infants have weird sleep schedules. I don't know. I'm kind of sleep deprived. That's why I'm talking about nasal polyps, I guess. And crew's laying there and his eyes are wide open, those bright blue eyes. And I just crawled down real close to him. And I just got as close as I could. And when you become a parent, there's just this part in you that you're just like, I just can't get close enough to him. And I sometimes get so close to crew that he goes cross-eyed and it's hilarious. <laughs> But it's just because there's just this, this draw as a father that I have for my child. And last night I got so close to Crew and I'm just pulling him close and I just started speaking over him. And I just said, Crew, I love you. I'm your daddy. You are awesome. You are such a gift from God. I delight in you. And the whole time he's so close, he can feel the breath coming from my mouth. He's sharing air with me. Have you ever considered that's exactly how God looks at you? That's exactly the intimacy that God desires to have with you. To get down on the floor, to pull you close, to have his heart just longing to get as close as he can to you and to be intimate with his creation, a father and an infant. Isn't it crazy that the God who can speak two trillion galaxies into existence, you matter so much to him that he pulls you that close. He loves you, like literally you, like he knows your name and he loves you so much that he pulls you that close that he would breathe into your nostrils. <sighs> Why do you think you don't matter? Why do you think you're not loved? There's a God who spoke galaxies into existence, who has the same love that I have for my son, for you. In fact, Zephaniah 3.17 says that he sings over you in delight. Who are you? If you miss that aspect of God, there will be so many frustrations, so many disappointments, so much loneliness that you will face, so much pain, because you aren't picturing God as a father holding an infant. Who are you? You're created in God's image for his glory. You are created to have a loving, intimate relationship with God, your father, and you're created to embrace his design for your life. We see God's perfect design all throughout these first few chapters of Genesis. In Genesis 1, we saw it in the formlessness and emptiness and chaos that was happening. God brought order. In Genesis 1.26, we see that as God creates man, he created him for a specific, in a specific nature to bear his image and that even our gender, male and female, 
female has an aspect of uh, embracing God's design. God in his wisdom and sovereignty gave you a gender and to align yourself to that is for your flourishing. God gave us a design for our purpose. Verse 28 of chapter one, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. What he's saying there is I want more image bearers, more people that give a world that reflect my glory to the world. And then he says, go and rule the fish of the seeds, the birds of the sky, every creature that crawls. He wants us to work this created world to bring about cultivation and flourishing in a way that honors him and brings him glory. God has a purpose for our relationships. At the end of chapter two, he brings Adam and Eve together and gives us the institution of marriage. And it's just this beautiful scene where a, husband, where a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and the two become one flesh. And because they were operating within God's design, they both were naked yet felt no shame. God also, out of an expression of his love, gives us rules and commands. The same way that I, I establish a bedtime for Isla and Jack, God gives us rules so that we would flourish under his commands. Because there's a reality that for Isla and Jack, they can't comprehend all of the rules that I give them. But they need to trust my wisdom as a father, that I wouldn't do anything. The same if I would pull them that close because I love them, then they can trust the rules that I give them are for their good. So we see this in 2.15. It said this, God, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. God gives them a command. And he says, if you embrace this command, if you embrace my design for your life, flourishing, You'll bring me glory. You will enjoy me forever. But if you reject this command, it will bring death. It will bring pain. It will bring condemnation. God, as our loving father, gives us a design to live by. He gives us commands. He gives us a purpose. And here's my question for you. Are you embracing that design for your life? When you think about who you are, are you trying to take the place of God and say, I am a skateboard? Or are you embracing his design? And look, I know that there are so many commands in our Bible that for so many of us just feel like it is uh, at the, addressing something that is at the core of our identity. But if we have a God who could speak galaxies into existence and loves us so much that he would pull us that close, then we have a God that we can trust in his wisdom and his sovereignty when he tells us that something is beyond the boundaries of our good. But what happened to humanity? As God was looking at us, we turned and looked at the tree. Right, God just commands them, don't go to this tree. But as he's looking at us, we looked at the tree and Adam and Eve and they go and they take the fruit that they shouldn't have ate. And as a result, they bring sin and brokenness and guilt and condemnation into the world. And for the first time, they recognize that they're naked and they feel ashamed. And so they sew fig leaves together to try to hide from God. And God comes into the garden and says, what happened? And they share with God what happened, how they disobeyed him, how it brought guilt and brokenness, how they tried to hide from God their sin, the shame of their sin with these fig leaves. And as a result, the God who loved them as a loving father also brings the, the judgment against their sin. 
And so he begins to deliver these curses, first to the serpent who deceived them. Then he curses the process of childbirth for the woman, the process of work for the man. And then he banishes them from the garden, banishes them from his presence, removing the access that they once had to God. That is the result of our rejection. But in the midst of all this banishment and death and consequences, we get a glimmer of grace. Look one more time at chapter 3, verse 2020. In the midst of all these curses, all this condemnation, here's a glimmer of grace that we get. Verse 20, the man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. As he's banishing them, God looks at these fig leaves sewn together. He's like, man, those are inadequate. And it was God who made clothes for them. But think about this. How do you make clothes out of skins? What's the only way you can get skins? You've got to kill an animal. An animal had to die on Adam and Eve's behalf in order for their shame to be covered. Here's the reality. All of us have turned away from the God who held us this close out of love. And we've looked to trees that he said, that's forbidden. We've rejected not only his design, but the intimate relationship we were created to have with him. And because of that, all of us stand under condemnation and guilt. All of us bear the shame of our sin. And Hebrews 4.13 tells us that every creature will stand naked and exposed before God to whom they will give an account. All of us, like Adam and Eve, will feel naked before God because of our rejection. But do you know what Colossians 3.3 says? That we are hidden in Christ. How? Only if Christ would become the Lamb of God who was slaughtered so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. An animal had to die in order to clothe them from their shame. And Christ Jesus was the animal from God that died so that you don't have to be naked in the shame of your sin, but instead can be clothed in his righteousness. Who are you? You were created by a powerful God for an intimate relationship with him. You were created to glorify him with your life, to enjoy him as you embrace his design for your life. And you have been redeemed by the Lamb of God who was sacrificed on your behalf so that you could have access to God. Will you embrace the God who created you? Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing thing that you are not just a distant God who is powerful and demands worship but you are a near God who draws us into worship. God, worship is treasuring something as valuable. And God, I pray that as we contemplate your majesty and glory and greatness, that we would treasure you as valuable. God, we want treasure these things that we think will bring value to our life, but instead we would treasure you, the God who created us and loves us, who draws us into a loving relationship with himself. 
Lord, thank you for the grace that we've received in Christ. The Lamb of God who was sacrificed on our behalf so that the shame of our sin could be clothed in his righteousness. God, I pray that as we contemplate that reality, it would move us to be people who seek our relationship with you above all else, who stand in awe of your greatness, that we would stand in the fear of the Lord, not a fear of being frightened of you, but a fear that is marked by awe and wonder at your glory and your greatness. God, help us to embrace your design for our lives. And as we do, that we would find our joy in you. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Salt Company Cedar Falls podcast. For more information about Salt Company, you can visit saltcedarfalls.com.